two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to this episode of The Flip Side. My name is Jeff Milley. I'm the Global Head of Research at Barclays. I'm joined today by Christian Keller, our Global Head of Economics. Thanks for joining me, Christian. Thanks for having me. Now, today we're going to talk about what kind of economic recovery we should expect once the global economic engine restarts. So I know that might sound hopeful to those of us who are still in the middle of social distancing, but we are seeing some signs that economic activity will restart, even though we haven't really fully come to terms with the damage done by COVID-19. Indeed, we're seeing the first steps towards opening uh, of uh, European economies in May. It's a gradual opening. Italy will reopen its manufacturing construction sectors and wholesale trade. France allows businesses to come back with the exception of cafes and restaurants. Germany has already allowed smaller sized commercial spaces to reopen, but they're not opening gyms and restaurants, etc. We see a, a similar trend in the US. The federal government has published guidelines for a phased reopening of the economy, and some of the US states are taking the first steps. In particular, the rural states with more dispersed populations like Alaska, Montana, Oklahoma, but also some states with larger population centers like Texas and Georgia. This is clearly a gradual lifting of restrictions. And, you know, they all have an eye on avoiding second waves of infection. But it does come at a time where we do see the effect of social distancing as it succeeds in reducing infection numbers. And it's also in line with what we have seen in other countries that uh, experienced the outbreak earlier, like China, for example. When we think about the recovery, we have to put a couple of pieces together. First, we have to start with the depth of the recession. Uh, and that's still something of an unknown, like I said earlier. But we are getting some more information about activity and particularly about labor markets. We also need to factor in the various fiscal and monetary policy responses. Yeah, and when I put the pieces together, I conclude that the recovery has a real chance of being quite robust. First of all, it's not a financial crisis. Literature shows quite convincingly that financial crises are the ones that bring us slow and tepid recoveries, while when the financial sector is strong, the recoveries tend to be quite robust as well. Secondly, we have a very large and a very rapid monetary and fiscal response, uh, probably the largest ever. And this coordinated response should do two things. First, it should limit the damage and make sure the lights stay on while we are in lockdown. And second, as we get out, it should provide the necessary boost to demand and help us recover. Well, Christian, I'm a lot more skeptical about the prospects for recovery. And that's not to diminish the, the speed or the magnitude of the policy response, uh, which I think has been substantial. Um, first of all, it is true that the crisis didn't start in the financial sector, but I actually think it could still spread there and we could end up with the bad effects of a financial crisis after all. Second, you know, the policy response will itself require financing. We're talking about trillions of extra sovereign debt that will need to get issued. And that's gonna come with its own costs, which I think will also hamper the recovery. So it is the case that the literature shows that spending like this helps, but we have never seen a crisis of this magnitude before. And I'm not so sure that the typical tools are going to work. Well, before we talk about the recovery, maybe we should emphasize the unprecedented depth of the downturn. I think we both expect the global economy to shrink by several percentage points in 2020. 
That is significantly more than during the global financial crisis when global growth was just slightly negative. And it's really more than in any point in post-war history. To add further perspective, the IMF used to consider it a global recession when the world economy would expand by less than 2.5% in a year. This year, it is likely that the global economy shrinks by over 2.5%. In short, this is the worst global economic crisis in generations. Yeah, look, on the extent of the downturn, we agree. But I point out that your global forecast, Christian, as gloomy as it sounds, is built on actually a, a pretty swift recovery in the second half of the year, which is offsetting to some extent the, the ongoing contractions that we're seeing in activity. You know, we've never had economic activity fall as rapidly and as deeply in such a short period as we are predicting in the first half of 2020. So actually the forecast would, act, would be even worse if the rebound that you're expecting doesn't come to pass. It's true. And I do would emphasize that our scenario is built on the assumption that the virus does not research in any meaningful way, which would bring back the lockdowns that we currently experience. But with that in mind, let me emphasize again why I'm optimistic. I think we could get a meaningful rebound over the next four to six quarters because, A, this is not a financial crisis, as I said earlier. Um, financial, in particular banking crises, have been well established as causing the slowest and most sluggish recovery because it takes banks some time to repair the balance sheets and build capital. And in the meantime, they're hesitant to lend. This is exactly what we experienced in 2008-9, 18-month-long recession followed by very slow growth and a very slow improvement in unemployment. That experience has, I think, tempered a bit our expectations for this recovery. And I think that may be the wrong template. Well, I certainly agree that the crisis uh, didn't start in the banking system like it did last time, uh, but I'm not actually so quick to conclude that banks are in the clear. So we just finished first quarter bank earnings season. We've now seen all the all, all the banks report. And one thing that struck me was the level of provisions that banks are taking. They are enormous. So provisions means banks are, are, are expecting losses. It's the the charge they take against future expected losses from loans they've made. Now, we haven't actually seen the loan losses materialize yet because obviously the job losses are still building and um, and businesses are just starting to come to terms with the, with the damage that's been done. Um, but it's clear that banks are expecting a surge of defaults from retail customers, small businesses, large businesses. I mean, the economic damage here is incredibly widespread. I think you may be underestimating the extent to which banks raise capital. Of course, if everyone in the economy defaults, then no amount of capital is sufficient. But as I said earlier, I do think the fiscal response should help cap the defaults. And banks now have higher capital levels than they have in other period in modern times. And regulators have stress tested the balance sheet against very severe outcomes. In fact, we are seeing now regulators taking steps to use this strength to help accelerate the recovery. For example, by reducing counter-cyclical capital buffers. They wouldn't take these steps if they had not extreme confidence in the strength of the system. Well, I hope you're right, uh, Christian, but I, I do think that whether or not banks end up having their own problems, which accelerate the, the, the depth of the economic damage, probably depends on how effective the policy response is. So if the fiscal response falls flat, then I think we will uh, likely see defaults overwhelm all this extra capital that you're talking about. That's a good segue into my other source of optimism, the policy response. Again, uh, the evidence from past 
crisis shows that where policy provides stimulus in time, recessions are less deep and recoveries are quicker and stronger. Today, we see a very forceful monetary and fiscal response. Central bankers have not hesitated to employ all available instruments, including rate cards, QE, larger scale liquidity programs, and they have firmly established their role as a lender of last resort. And again, the pace of QE is actually faster than the early days of the global financial crisis, not only by the Fed, but also by the ECB, which seems to have learned from its more hesitant response during the global financial crisis. And very importantly, this has been accompanied by a fiscal policy response on a massive scale. This includes spending of 5 to 10% of above the line, meaning revenues and, and, and expenditure, uh, but at the same time also a very large liquidity support programs in forms of loans and guarantees. These type of below the line measures make up for a total fiscal response often up to 20 to 30% of GDP. Implications of these measures for the public finances will vary and they will maybe only realized over time. But again, it's a very, very meaningful response. Well, look, there's no denying the facts, the speed and the size of the response from monetary and fiscal authorities has been impressive. Um, and they're timed coincidentally, obviously, because the virus is putting pressure on all of these economies at the same time. Um, but I wouldn't really call them coordinated. There are actually, I think, some pretty big differences in the types of support being introduced uh, in the U.S. compared to a bunch of the countries in Europe, for example. I think the differences in design reflect institutional differences that exist between economies. For example, European corporates are much more reliant on bank credit versus uh, in the U.S., where corporates are much more reliant on, on capital markets. We also have the automatic stabilizers in form of unemployment insurance and shorter work schemes in Europe, while in the US we have a much more flexible labor market that experiences typically larger job losses during the crisis, but then typically also facilitates a quicker recovery afterwards. And these differences require different policy designs. But again, the crucial point is how determined policymakers have reacted across continents. And, you know, all this adds up to what is probably the largest counter-cyclical policy response in modern times. All right, I want to go through uh, each of monetary and fiscal policy uh, separately. So let's start with the monetary policy response. You know, I think actually a lot of the monetary response has been an effort to keep markets functioning rather than to try to bolster the economy. So um, a lot of markets stopped working or functioning smoothly during the height of the crisis. We saw pressures uh, in the front end of the financing markets, things like commercial paper and short-dated corporate bonds. We saw disruptions in mortgage-backed securities in the U.S. We even saw disruptions in really liquid markets like treasuries, where, where there were all sorts of relative value relationships that got thrown out of whack and bid-offer spreads really widened. I think a lot of those disruptions in markets were linked to the constraints on banks. So the, the, the other side of having a very safe banking system is that banks' balance sheets aren't that flexible and when a crisis hits, they have a difficult time intermediating. We got a preview of that with the chaos in the repo markets in September, which was a subject of episode, uh, of episode 17. You know, look, I think that the monetary response is better than nothing. It's certainly better than, than not responding, but, but I'm not really sure it actually helps with the recovery. This may be true for programs like commercial paper, even though I would argue that forestalling defaults does have real benefits. But on QE, I would insist that it did help the economy during the financial crisis. 
You may not always know how exactly QE worked, but a counterfactual world without QE would very likely have looked worse in terms of growth and inflation. All right. Well, you know, my bigger issue, Christian, is with the fiscal response. So you mentioned the size of the deficits uh, that are being created. And I think you meant that as a good thing, like to show how, how forceful governments have been. Um, but I think that these deficits have their own consequences. So, so for example, not too long ago, during the financial crisis, we were talking about debt overhang. So how sovereign debt over a certain size leads to poor future economic outcomes. We are blowing through those limits across the entire developed world as governments respond to this crisis. And it's not just because of the spending that you mentioned. That is a big part of it. But the other part is that tax receipts are also going down. So the deficits are actually being created from both sides of the ledger. Um, look, no, look, like I'm not claiming that um, that they shouldn't, government shouldn't respond. I think what they're doing is way better than the alternative of not responding at all. But that's different than saying that the economic response will scale with the size of the spending. So you mentioned like we have literature that shows that this kind of spending helps buffer times of crisis. And that is true. But the literature really is looking at small crises, at least on, compared to the scale of COVID-19. With a small crisis, you get a small boost in spending and a reasonably good result. Here, we have a huge crisis. We're doing huge spending, but I don't, I don't know that you necessarily get the same outcome. We're going to have the highest debt levels in the developed world ever in a time of peace. That debt will require some combination of higher taxes, uh, financial repression, where certain institutions are forced to hold government debt. Um, it will crowd out other financing. I mean, th this will have consequences on the recovery. No doubt we will emerge from this with much higher government debt levels. But there has been some rethinking among economists about sustainable debt levels and the role of government spending. We're in a world now where economies' real equilibrium interest rates have continued to fall for some time across all regions. The reasons are likely a mix of developments like demographics, technology, and possibly also inequality. The current crisis is unlikely to reverse this trend, and it may even further accelerate it. So if we live in a world where real interest rates remain historic lows, governments can afford higher debt burdens than what we thought in the past. And at the same time, government spending may also play a, a more useful role than maybe what we thought in the past. I would say though, uh, there clearly are differences between how much debt countries can afford and um, governments with uh, credible institutions issuing in their own currencies are in a different position than, for example, economies that need to issue in other currencies. Uh, Japan is one example. It has been issuing debt in its own currency. The debt is largely held by its own residents, and it has been able to sustain debt levels way above 200% for some time now. The US and other economies may be able to go the Japan way. And in the meantime, their central banks are buying much of the new issuance, and therefore they limit negative effect, for example, of the crowding out that you mentioned earlier. Well, I'd point to another finding in the literature, Christian, which is that you know, during crises like these, you never really make up the lost activity. There's no such thing as an actual V recovery. So a V means you get back to the pre-crisis path in GDP level terms. That doesn't happen. Really, the best you can hope for is that you get back to the same pace of growth, but the output lost during the crisis is actually permanent. So even with a quick recovery factored in, we're forecasting a cumulative global GDP loss of close to $9 trillion over the next two years. And what's worse is that 
Often during crises, economies don't return to the old growth trend. They actually settle at a slower growth trend, which is what happened after the global financial crisis. In that respect, I would say that a look at equity prices clearly suggests that investors expect the economy to get back to the same trend growth that we had before the crisis. You know, I've, I think I have two responses to the equity rally that we have experienced over the past several weeks. First is that all the quantitative easing you talked about could be distorting equity prices. You mentioned our experience during the financial crisis was that quantitative easing helped the economic recovery. Another experience we had was that it supported asset prices. And as you mentioned, the quantitative easing we are experiencing now is far more rapid than what we saw during the financial crisis. And that could be a big factor behind the boost in equity prices rather than something fundamental about the health of the economy. I also would point out that the stock market is not the same thing as the economy. The stock market is the largest, most powerful companies in the economy. And I think those companies are very well positioned to come out of this crisis with more market share than they had going in, accelerating a trend towards uh, towards aggregating market share at the biggest companies that the U.S. and other developed economies have been experiencing for the last 15 or 20 years. That sort of aggregation of market power, which has been the subject of previous episodes of the flip side, could actually get more, you know, could actually accelerate. So that's, you know, a company like Amazon taking share from local retailers or chain restaurants taking share from family-owned restaurants. Those big companies have all sorts of access to financing. They have flexible balance sheets. They can weather this storm much more capably than small entrepreneurs can. I'm actually worried that you're going to see massive wealth destruction across that sort of that entrepreneurial class in America. So, you know, restaurants, obviously, but all sorts of other small and medium enterprises in, in, in other industries. I think that some of the rally in stock market is actually a warning sign about the kind of economy we're going to have once we emerge from this crisis. Yes, good point. Uh, this is potentially one of the changes, but there probably will be a number of structural changes uh, that will emerge as a result of, of the current crisis. Um, for example, take uh, global value chains. You know, for decades now, we have uh, increasingly uh, split up production and uh, uh, had supply chains that reached across continents, uh, making us very reliant at times on, on, certain, on certain countries and certain producers. It seems that after the crisis, um, be it for geopolitical reasons or also simply for the fact that one wants to have a certain important products closer to home, we will probably see some relocalization uh, with regard to global value chains. The second part is behavioral changes. You see a lot of people, for example, now uh, using e-commerce and also working from home. Even after the crisis is over, they may want to continue uh, working this way, for example. This could have uh, implications for commercial real estate. Uh, furthermore, we will likely see uh, longer lasting implications for travel, tourism, and also entertainment. I think in, in some, it is fair to say that uh, we will likely see a structurally different global economy as a result of the current crisis. Well, those are good topics for a future episode of The Flip Side. Thanks for joining me, Christian. Clients of Barclays can access all of our COVID-19 related research at hashtag virus available on Barclays Live. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the flip side. For more insights about this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com/ib.